You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. A reading from the Gospel of John. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away in the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It's good to be with you today for day number two. And today I want to start by discussing one life experience that I missed because I got married early. I got married right out of college when I I was 22 years old. So something that I just missed out completely is this phenomenon of internet dating, or now dating mostly through your phone, I suppose. And while I am perfectly happy with not having to do that, because Lord knows I don't need another avenue for exploring my own awkwardness, 
I am still sometimes curious about the dynamics of it, sort of how it all works. A few years ago, I read a story about a man who got frustrated with how on dating sites you only show your good side. You use the best pictures and you highlight the sort of most interesting personal details that you have. And so even though you spend most Saturdays on the couch uh, in your sweatpants, you talk about how you love hiking and you love volunteering at your local dog shelter. You write about how you love new culinary experiences. Meanwhile, you just microwaved eggs and put ketchup on them like a monster. You talk about how you love spending time with your family. It's because you still live with your parents. So no matter what you do, you are set up for failure when you meet your date because the reality often just can't live up to the presentation. And so what this man did was he created a new dating website called Settle for Love. And you have to admit from the start that the word settle is not an inspiring word for relationships, but the idea, I think, was sound enough. A person wouldn't post only great pictures, but also some less flattering ones. They would lay out their positives, but also share some negatives about themselves. So after some initial site growth, people were interested in the website, the site quickly began to stagnate and then started bleeding customers because the creator realized that nobody wants to show their bad side in something so fragile as dating. And beyond that, we can't even trust people to be honest. It's one thing to say that you put the toilet paper roll on the wrong way. You know, it always should go up and over and never, you know, maybe that's a thing. Is that a thing for you? It's a thing, okay? It's a thing. I'm not being weird. It's one thing to do that wrong and to admit that, that sort of level of sin. It's another thing to say, I'm a person who has struggled with suicidal thoughts. I am a person who is deeply insecure. Maybe I am just a little bit too dependent on that third drink every night. We want to put forth our best selves, the good or the attractive person in us. We want to be people that other people can love. And so we project the aspects of ourselves that we think people will like, whether it's rooted in accomplishments or appearance or personality. When people say that it's important to be yourself, they are mostly lying. Be yourself to a certain extent, but hold back the weird or sad or mean or off-putting aspects of yourself. Project only the right image. Project only the right image. I think it's true from experience. I also think it's something that we see in the Bible. That one of the things that we as humans are most afraid of is something that we also desire the most, which is for somebody else to fully know who we are and still fully love us. We want to be fully known and fully loved, to be truly known. For someone to know the good and the weird and the bad and the ugly about us. Not what we just project to others, but to truly know us and then also still to love us. But I think, you know, probably our own experience makes it clear that you can't always have both of those things. Surely if somebody really knew me, they wouldn't completely love me. If they knew kind of the, the thoughts that roll around in my head sometimes that I don't tell anyone else about, if they knew some of the things that I've done or that I want to do, maybe they would love me, but probably not fully. Because once you really knew me, could you really love me? We want to be fully known, to have those sort of deep relationships based on unconditional acceptance. But it's dangerous. 
You always risk that if you are fully known, you will not be fully loved. And so we learn to hide our real selves in so many different ways. In today's reading from the Gospel of John, and I appreciate you all standing and being willing to listen through that longer reading. There's really no way to make it shorter. But in that reading, Jesus meets a woman who is hiding her true self. Now, as commentators always point out, Jesus, just by speaking to her, is transgressing a number of social norms. He is a Jew, and she is a Samaritan. They don't have dealings with one another. She's a woman, and he is a man, and there were rules about those sorts of things. And she's also a person that has the baggage of having a scandalous life. This woman would be, I think, something of a social outcast. She's had five husbands, and the man that she's living with now, as we learn, is not her husband. Society would not have judged her kindly. You know, either she's been widowed multiple times or divorced, and either way, she would be in a desperate place. Her life gives her a a reason, a really good reason, to put up a barrier, to think, Surely if people know my story, if they know my past, they will judge me. They'll assume the worst of me. They will cast me off. And so when Jesus speaks to her in this story, she has to be wondering not just, why is this guy talking to me? But I think somewhere in the back of your mind would always be this wondering, what would he think of me if he really knew me? She's come, of course, in the midday heat, needing water, and she's tired, and now this man is talking to her when he shouldn't be. So she's understandably defensive in this story. Jesus, you know, has a need. He expresses a desire for water, and she can help him. So he asks her for water, and she's thrown off. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Jesus, as he goes on, says that if she knew who he was, she would ask him for living water. He claims that he can give something greater than the water from the well. But she points out, you know, you don't have a bucket. How are you going to accomplish anything? You don't have the tools to draw the water. Do you think you are greater than our forefather Jacob who gave us this well? And by asking that question, she's trying to validate her identity as a Samaritan. You know, to say, we come from Jacob too, not just you Jews. And by the way, you're very egotistical to think that you're better than one of the patriarchs. She assumes he's offering something, you know, just like normal water. But he is speaking of God's life-giving spirit. And he persists in offering this gift to her. And after her initial hesitation, this offer finally does sound pretty great to her. She thinks it'll be a reprieve from having to come and do the back-breaking work of drawing water from the well and then carrying it home. Now Jesus, as he often does in the Gospel of John, doesn't stop to explain what he's talking about. But he is offering something far better than she imagines. He's offering unending nourishment for someone with unending need. She doesn't understand, but she begins to trust that he can provide. And then the conversation takes a turn. Jesus says, go call your husband and come here. He's offered something that sounds unreal, but now her past is being brought up. Now the tables will be turned. And so she gives a kind of shifty response. I have no husband. This, of course, is technically true, but it's misleading. She wants to avoid the shame and judgment of her situation. But just as throughout the Gospels, Jesus always diagnoses problems before he cures them, so now he will not let the woman's situation remain a secret. She will be fully known, because that's always where grace goes to work. 
It's when the facade has been stripped away. It's when all of our secrets have been brought to light. She says, I have no husband. Jesus counters, you're right. You have no husband now, but you've had five and you're in an illicit relationship right now. She immediately tries to change the subject. She can confirm that he is a prophet. He's some sort of special person because he's displayed this profound knowledge of her situation that he shouldn't know. So she brings up the incredibly divisive issue between Jews and Samaritans of where true worship happens. As a prophet, Jesus may know the truth about her past, but she knows the truth that eventually the Messiah will come and he will tell us all things. And to that, Jesus simply declares, I am he. And then she believes. She doesn't wait for miracles or signs or a long discourse on why she should believe. Jesus has simply revealed to her who he is, and she believes. In fact, the very reason why she believes is the one reason why she might have feared Jesus. She goes back to her people and says, He told me all that I ever did. She's had a hard life. She's probably been judged for years. Everyone knows too much about her, even if they don't know everything. It shouldn't be good news that someone knows all of her past, that someone knows her fully. But rather than being a point of shame, it's a source of joy for her. He told me all that I ever did. With everyone else to be fully known, is dangerous, if not a downright disaster. We want to be truly known, but then how could I ever be fully loved? Yet with Jesus, this woman is both fully known and fully loved. Nothing keeps Jesus from declaring who he is to her, and nothing stops him from giving her the gift of living water. The woman told the other Samaritans, he told me all that I ever did. And this is an exaggeration. But he told her precisely the thing that made her the most vulnerable. The thing that provided grounds for everyone else to judge her. The very thing that would matter most in hiding herself from others. But the true Messiah is the one who knows fully and yet also loves fully. This is what the gospel said to that Samaritan woman on that day and what I believe it says to each and every one of us today still. I know you. I know you fully. And I love you. I see everything that you hide in your hearts and your minds. I see everything that you don't want others to see. I know your anger. I know your insecurity, your addictions, your bad habits, your misplaced desires. I know your low self-esteem, your inability to trust. I know the abuse you've suffered in the past, or maybe even the abuse that you've given. I know all of those things, and I love you. I know you fully, and I love you fully. As Paul told us yesterday, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not for the good or the righteous, but for sinners. Not for the strong, but for the weak. God knows us fully. He diagnoses our sin. He knows our brokenness. And in the face of all of it, he declares his love to you in Jesus Christ. Not just to everyone else here, not to the person who's you know, sitting behind you or in front of you or who came with you. Not just to everyone else, but to you, to the very real you. God forgives all of your sins in Jesus Christ. And it's that kind of love that never stops saying to you in the gospel, I know you, I truly know you, and I love you. 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.